Thanks for listening to episode number 185 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. Today, I've got a great guest. Uh, He was actually on once before back in August of 2014. I looked it up. It's episode number 163, but he's on again for episode number 185. It's Justin Weiss. Uh, Justin's the author of a relatively new book, at least in its final form, called Practicing Rails, and a great blog at justinweiss.com. I'm looking forward to this one. Hey, Justin. Hi. All right. So uh, I I have good news and bad news to start off. All right. So the good news is you sent me uh, a copy of your book last week, and uh, uh, I read it. Every single page. I've read the entire things. I, I even highlighted bits that I found interesting, which if anyone was sitting looking over my shoulder in college or high school, they know that this may be the first time I've ever actually highlighted a book. So... So I'm prepared. Uh, the bad news is that in the last two days, I was very, very busy and didn't really have time to assemble, say, a bunch of questions on what I read. So uh, if you're up for it, let's do a bit of a, a back and forth. You actually just sent, sent an email out um, to people that, uh, that have uh, purchased your book the other day. I don't know, maybe two days ago, or maybe you send it out, you know, end days after someone purchases. And, uh, it said something like, well, tell me what you think or what questions you have or what feedback. So I thought we could start by actually reversing it a little bit. And I'm going to put the onus on you and say, Hey, I just read your book and it's very fresh. I still have, I think the whole thing in my mind. Uh, why don't we start off by, you know, you, you can guide us a little bit and ask the questions you've wanted to ask of someone that's recently read your book, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Uh, well, so, I mean, the whole, the whole idea behind, uh, behind the book is that um, the more that you actually use the things that you learn as you go through uh, tutorials and screencasts and that kind of thing, the more it's going to stick with you. And so actually using the ideas that you have in Rails in real-world situations uh, can help you learn really, really quickly. And so um, the question that I'm actually most interested in uh, for people that have just read the book is how have you taken the lessons in the book themselves and applied them right away? Like which ones helped you out the most? What did you actually use them to learn in Rails or in uh, anything else that you're trying to trying to pick up? Yeah, so there was a section pretty early in the book, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to kind of uh, give a bit of a preamble. So I think you did a good job of, of uh, giving an overview of the book. And what I would say is it's it's written for a very interesting audience. And tell me if I'm wrong on this. So it's, it's written for people that aren't exactly beginners. So if you picked up this book and you had not ever written a Rails app, I think you'd have trouble. Um, but it's also not written for um, advanced or even... You know, if you've built a large production Rails app, it's probably not exactly written for you. Now, I mean, we'll talk about, I think, the sections that are. I think there are sections that are, sections that aren't. Um, but it's sort of written for what I'd imagine is the largest group of Rails developers, which is people that have a bit of experience, kind of could say at a party that they know Rails, but if they're being honest with themselves, aren't really comfortable and probably couldn't build anything big. Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. Um it's uh, again, like I, I think I might have mentioned the last time I was on, uh, I was kind of going through a couple of the, um, uh, like I was going through a couple iterations of the book. And at one point I looked at it and I said, this is exactly like every single other intro rails tutorial except worse. And <laughs> even though that would, uh, and even though that would probably uh, get a little bit better as, you know, through revisions and stuff, uh, it just wasn't like, 
if the I my problem was that if the um, Rails tutorials that were out there weren't uh, helping people actually become the Rails developer that they wanted to be, then another Rails tutorial probably wasn't the answer. Yeah, and it feels like a relay race on that first book. Like as a, you know, there are many tutorials, whether they're books or or courses or you know whatever. Um, that kind of get your feet wet. And this feels like the baton pass after that, or maybe one step after that, but you know, where now you've gotten, you know, gotten a little bit of experience and, and you're less concerned with sort of basic concepts and more concerned with how the heck do I actually make something? Uh, so anyhow, that's what it felt like to read. Um, and it's, I, I, given that I'm not exactly in that target demographic, I, I, tried hard to put myself back in that place in addition to just reading it, you know, from my current, um, point of view. Um, so, you know, it, that's hard to do. So I don't know how effective I was in imagining myself back in that moment, but you know, I tried. So back, cool. to, back to your, uh, back to your question about sort of what was most helpful. I, I thought that, and it was pretty early in the book, you have a section about creating test apps. Um, yeah. And, and the gist of it is this, that, you know, you have a directory in your, uh, you know, on your laptop that's just for test apps where you um, create a quick and scaffold a, a quick application just to test out, or I don't even test is the right word, sort of explore something. Maybe you read a blog post or maybe you saw something in the documentation or whatever, and you want to get a better feel for how it works. Um, you create a little test app. You explore a little bit and then you leave it as is named sort of correctly in whatever state you left it in so that you can come back uh, when you're going to use that in a real app and sort of reference what you did as a little, as a little toy app. And I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I, I don't know that I use that strategy as much as you do based on the book. But I think that I, I do a little bit and I think doing it more would be smart, especially on, on, uh, you know, on some new app. So I thought that section was very good. And, you know, even for, for someone that's built bigger rails apps and is, you know, maybe a, a, a bit past the sort of beginner intermediate level, um, it still was pretty practical for me. Like I, I, I thought long and hard about whether I could, you know, take those suggestions and improve my sort of learning workflow a little bit. So that's, that's one, um, you know, anything you'd want to add about that, that section and in, in that process that you use? Uh, yeah, it's actually, uh, it's kind of funny because I've done a lot more of that as I've been writing the blog posts too, because a lot of those have source code and it's very easy if you're just writing source code without actually trying it out to, uh, to get things wrong. And some of the most interesting things that have come up in the uh, in the writing is uh, are things that I never would have thought about had I just started writing code in like you know um, in the blog post itself, where it's like okay, well I this is interesting. Like I wonder if I take this one step further. Like I wonder if this thing works, or uh, you know I wonder if uh, I was playing around with uh, Ruby keyword arguments recently, and it's like okay, well I wonder if. Um, I can pass a hash and it'll automatically like splat those to keyword arguments. And it turns out that at least in some cases, in some versions of Ruby, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, so do you mind, uh, I should have asked this up front, but uh, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you mind criticism for me? Uh, not at all. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Cause okay. So I'm going to preamble any criticism with this. I think you are, you have the best single blog in the Ruby community right now. 
uh, Thank e- you. easily. I think it's consistent. It's so well done. I think the topics are interesting. I think it it's not snarky. Thank God. I really like that. I, I really don't like snark, and I think you aren't snarky in any way, which is nice. Uh, so any criticism is only offered because I I respect your writing immensely. Uh, and it's not criticism of the writing. It's just thoughts on, on the book. Oh, thank you. So uh, one thing that I, I – it didn't necessarily help me right now, but would have helped me tremendously if I was at the point in my Rails learning that I think most people that read the book would be in is the – I'm looking up the book right now to see this section – it was the, it's like the learning path. What did you call it? So the, the gist of it is, is you said, Hey, you can't learn everything at once. And there are a million things you have to learn. So here's like a cookbook, a blueprint, like a roadmap, I guess, of all the, of the things that you kind of can not pay attention to at first. And the things you should pay attention to at first by technology related to the rail stack. Mm-hmm. What was that called? I don't um, Like a, a learning path is actually a really, a uh, really good way of describing it. So I thought that I thought that it was very interesting that that was at the end of the book because once I read the whole book I thought that that could have been the whole book. Yeah. Like because I thought it was very uh I don't I thought it was very practical but not in an obvious way because for people that are learning who the heck knows what you're what you should learn first, right? There's an immense you know, you know, set of things you could choose from. So I really liked that section. I, I wondered if it was at the wrong part of the book. Maybe it doesn't matter. But I, I wondered if it should have led with that. I wondered if that should have been blown up a little bit into a bigger section. Because I thought it was really good. And I thought that, like, I, I, I wanted more of that. And I wanted to think more about that. Um, I'm not sure. Did, I, did it get added in late? Or is that an area that, you know, w- what's your point of view about that section of the book? Um, well, just uh, kind of in general, um, writing uh, writing the book gave me a new appreciation for, I guess, whoever lays out songs on CDs or anything because, you know, the order really does matter. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. And uh, and I, I went through a whole, like, a whole bunch of different reorderings of the book um, as I was going through it and, like, trying to get the flow right and trying to get, like, that kind of thing. And uh, with that, it was, it was more... Um, I wanted to I wanted to lead a little bit with things that were a little bit more um, like hands on, where you could actually take what I you know what I had in the chapter and like use it today. So and just, while just to be specific, so I'm looking at the the table of contents now. So the two first chapters are tiny apps. Now that's the one that I said I liked a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and then how to build your own Rails app. Which yeah. it was probably my least favorite chapter in the book, but mm-hmm. but anyhow, yeah, those those were the two specific chapters I think that follow what you're saying here. Yeah. So uh, so with those, uh, it's it, it was really just about kind of like getting in and trying it out and just seeing that you could actually uh, that you if you scope things down far enough that you can start and you can build your first feature and then you can eventually like keep iterating on that to um, create your first app. And so that was really the uh, the main problem point that I was seeing from the people that I was talking to through uh, through the mailing list and through the blog. And so um, I kind of wanted to lead with those just so that they could get a little bit of a quick win on that. And then as they go through uh, through the rest of it a little bit more, I start to like layer on a little bit more until I get to a little bit more of the meta stuff. Uh, and so that's kind of what I was trying to close with is the. Like these are uh, the type. This is the path that you should take as you like improve your um, 
uh, as you improve your rails and Ruby knowledge and, uh, and then, uh, closed with the, like, and this is how you can actually find the time to reinvest in, um, in learning this kind of stuff so that you can, uh, improve even more quickly over time. Yeah, I see. So I'm, I'm sort of following through the table of contents and I definitely see exactly how you came to that order. That makes sense to me. I think that for me, the, I don't know if it, I, I can't, I haven't been able to figure out yet. I got to think about it more, whether it's the topic about the, how to build your rails app, kind of the, like, which feature do you start with? What do you add next? Or, or the depth that the topic was explored in that didn't, didn't really speak to me that much. I think it may be that I'm just not generally interested in that topic that much, but again, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to sort of put yourself back at various places in your own learning journey, I think, or it was hard for me to, at the very least. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that, so the next section, so you started off with the tiny apps. I love that. The how to build your rails app, I thought was maybe a little, a little short, but I, I totally get how it could be how it could be a focus of people that are at that stage. The next step, and I, and I want to talk about this one more, is testing your code, or the next chapter, testing your code efficiently and effectively. So mm -hmm. I found this uh, chapter to be very interesting because like, it, what it felt like as a reader, it, uh, a reader that has, has been programming in Ruby for a while, was that you really are pretty TDD-focused, actually. But that, yeah. but that you don't want to really say that because it's intimidating to someone that's relatively new because they don't know how to program that well. So, you know, testing is programming. So now you're going to say, hey, you know how you can be a better programmer is program. And that that's intimidating and maybe a little bit uh, unfair. So you kind of tiptoed into it, but still weren't that apologetic about saying, but seriously, this is the right way to do it. Tell me about that tension. Did I, did I catch that tension right? And what was it like to try to navigate that? I think so. And one of the things that I think came up with the whole DHH thing at RailsConf last year is the amount of just added baggage that gets uh, thrown around when people talk about TDD these days. So TDD kind of started starts encompassing the... Um, the idea of like what is a unit test? Is it a um, like a unit of functionality? Is it a unit as in a single class? And um, I know that there are you know there are formal definitions for this kind of kind of thing. But uh, as you go through the um, like the conversations, you see that people start to talk past one another, and it becomes kind of difficult to follow, and it's really difficult to know if you're doing it right, whatever right ends up being. So with with me, um, it, it's. Uh, in all my writing, including in the blog, a lot of the times I'll uh, I'll try to jettison specific words just because they do carry around a little bit of baggage and uh, they can be intimidating like that. So I was kind of I do kind of follow a, a TDD process or like a you know, outside in testing process um, where I try to test an entire feature at a super high level and then eventually kind of drill down to the individual models and classes and that's kind of the approach that I was uh, that I share in that chapter. Yeah, it, well, the whole topic has no baggage with me, so we can call it TDD or outside in or both. That's fine. All right. I find the whole topic... Let, let's talk about this for a few minutes. Uh, I actually find it frustrating. I, I think that the baggage that comes with TDD is more accurately just like nerds are annoying. You know, like about everything, TDD included. But you could pick any topic and they're annoying. They're pedantic. They, you know, talk past each other. They think they're smarter, etc. And... 
you know, so is true for, for testing, but it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater to, at least in my opinion, to say, well, therefore, you know, it's overblown and we shouldn't focus on testing quite as much because it's, you know, really not helping the cause. Like in my experience, cause I've, I've built a, I built one big app before I really learned TDD. And then I built a lot of stuff since then. And on that journey, there's no comparison. I'm a 10 times better programmer after TDD. It's not, it's ridiculously not close. So oh, I, yeah. I find I find the the sort of uh, cable news uh, equal access to both sides of that opinion in some conversations right now a little annoying because it just doesn't fit with my experience at all. Um, I'm not sure if you it, how you feel about that, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of go uh, I, I kind of go both ways on it. Where um, I, I mean, I I know TDD has has totally helped me out, uh, especially when it comes to or when especially when I'm kind of a little bit directionless in what I'm writing, where I'll. Uh, I need some sort of, uh, like, I guess almost guardrails not to prevent me from making errors, but to keep me building what I originally set out to build. Um, but I also, I, there's so much stuff that somebody new to Rails and programming and everything have to learn that they're not going to write perfect code. They're not going to write well-tested code originally. And so if it's, uh, if it's a matter between, or if, if it's uh, a decision between starting at all and not writing tests, I'd rather have them start and then bring tests in later and then actually realize the additional value the tests bring to them. Oh yeah. And back to the book, I thought you handled that very well. Cause I, you know, you didn't, you didn't say, Hey, just because you uh, aren't comfortable with, uh, as a programmer enough to, to write tests in the way that you'd ultimately want to, um, doesn't mean like, so that doesn't mean you can't be a programmer now. And it doesn't mean that tests aren't important. Like they're both true. You can start, and eventually, once you're able to test your code, you'll be a better programmer. I thought you hit those points very well. Like, it was very balanced, and it, it, it didn't make me feel like you were sort of misleading the newer programmer um, or discouraging them from getting going. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty good. Thanks. Yeah, the um, the whole, I mean, the, the TDD debate is interesting because it is one of those... Um, it's one of those topics that just really seems to frustrate the people that I talk to, Um in the again in the blog and in the newsletter, where it it's one of those sticking points that actually causes people to just give it up entirely because it's like, well, I just can't do it right, and I don't even know what right is. Yeah. And so, um, like starting a little bit lightweight and doing what you like, writing the tests that you can, um, giving a, a few frameworks for getting your tests in a like in a way that you can just say, okay, well, if I follow this pattern, I'm not going to get too far off track, and. Just those types of things, um, I think, can really help somebody that that's completely confused about it at least start writing bad tests, which is the first step on the road to writing good tests. Now, what's your experience? That pe- do people have more trouble with the programming side of writing tests or the dis- like um, design side of writing tests? Like, do they have more trouble deciding what to test or how to test? It's a little bit of both in in uh, or from what I've seen where. It's it's not so much like okay well I need to learn all the asserts because that's pretty that's pretty easy um, you just you know go to the go to the documentation and see what each one is and they they're pretty self explanatory but more than that it's uh, it's about knowing what your like which like you said what what to test the different pieces of functionality to test but also how to test what you should be asserting what you should be uh, testing in order to make sure that you're not just writing a hundred assertions that all eventually test the same thing where you spend so much time writing tests that don't actually give you any value that 
you don't get to write the actual code that you need to write in order to get the feature done. I don't remember if you gave this tip in the book. I suspect you did, but the best tip I ever got about testing was make sure it fails and that the failing part is the most valuable. Like in other words, like I think that, uh, I mean, and of course, like, you know, red, green, or factor, everyone knows that, but really understanding the sort of benefit of red. And I, I just watched this uh, video from EmberConf last night and it was Torin Billups giving this like epic live coding demo. If you haven't watched it, you've got to watch it. Uh, it's really amazing about how he TDDs, uh, Ember apps and, uh, his Vim skills are ridiculous and it's just very entertaining. But anyways, um, he, he talks about the value of red and how, you know, he, he does not follow the, like, do the smallest thing to make the test pass first, but rather he sort of does the smallest thing to make the, the, uh, error message on the red in the right direction. So at first it was like expect to actual nil, then it goes expect to actual one and then green. And like that use of red to get to green, to give you feedback along the way was like in a little bit of teaching about how to do that, right. was the best advice I ever got about how to use tests to sort of learn or find the path to the right code. And I, I think you kind of, you kind of covered that idea. I don't know if you said that specifically, but you know, I think it's hard to, when you're, you know, back to the question of which part's harder, if you're, if you're new to programming, um, while testing is going to help you write more code, which will make you a better programmer. It's also, you know, that's the thing that's scariest at first. And if you're in rails, a lot of, you know, macros do a lot of the macros and generators are going to do a lot of the work for you at first. And testing is probably the most bare bones programming you do. And I can just imagine getting way in the deep end real quick. If you were, if you were pretty new. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I do agree with you about the, uh, about the need for seeing your tests to fail at some, like at some point during the process. Uh, because I've been bit so many times by a test that's just improperly passing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where it's, it's just not, not testing anything close to what you thought it was going to test. That, I'm kind uh, of religious about it now. I just make sure it does because I've been bitten by it so many times. I'm like, okay, I'm just not good enough to not do it this way. Yeah. Yeah, one thing um, I I kind of do just as a, uh, like maybe it's just a development philosophy or something, but I, I tend to spike a lot where I, I tend to, um, build a prototype or just like give something a shot first and see just kind of where, uh, what the code is doing, uh, what would happen if I did this, what would happen if I tweak, you know, maybe seeing if I can find, like, if I'm fixing a bug, see if I can find the er where the error is. Um, and a lot of times I do that before I write the test, especially if it's pretty easy to get to that point. But what I will do at that point is I, I will undo the fix and then I'll write the test and then I'll redo the fix um, again, manually, because I've, you know, I've always found that the second time I do something is almost always better. And that way I come in with a little bit more knowledge about the system. So I'm not kind of beating my head against, uh, the system, trying to get it to do what I need it to do. So I, I do that, except I, I, I say, I still try to do that in what people would call refactor. In other words, like get the tests as guardrails and then rip out the implementation. That's kind of gnarly. Once I know a little bit more about the situation, if it's a little bit complicated and then, you know, re-implement what I think is a better solution, having the tests be there so that I know when I actually fixed it, um, which I think is the same basic idea, except it's, it's kind of using the, the lousy initial implementation as the way to get a test that's solid so that you can then go create the solid implementation, knowing that the test will help you along the way. 
um, which is maybe a little bit different than what you said, but but uh, similar in the spike at some point to get from initial to better implementation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I have found helpful with the spike is that it will it shows me that I'm actually at least close to finding the solution before I, I before I start kind of solidifying the um, the fix in the test, which has helped me out a couple times when I write the test first, but the test was written without a full understanding of what the code is doing. And so the code or the test will actually or will end up exercising something completely different than what the bug actually is or what the um, what the root problem actually is. And so that that sometimes led to some tests that weren't actually testing what they were supposed to, even though it failed the first time because the code wasn't there and then it passed the second time because the code was there. But it still wasn't testing the right thing. I thought you gave a pretty good piece of advice related to all this uh, about um, converting. I don't think you called them production errors, but let's call them production errors into tests before you write the fix. Um, it, while that seems like such an obvious thing, like let's say, for example, on your production app, you have a, you know, there's an exception that's thrown and you capture it and now you have to make the fix. It seems obvious that the first thing you do is put in a test that replicates that error so that then your, you know, testing suite understands the, the world as it is so that you can fix it. But I think practically speaking, people skip that so often it's remarkable, you know, and that it feels like there's such pressure to fix the problem when it's in production and people start hacking. Like I, I, I think I was guilty of this for a while on some apps that, that I'd, you know, be all, all diligent about going test first on the code before it was out in the wild. But then once it was out in the wild, I'd act like a firefighter, just like spraying fixes all over the hot mess. And, uh, and I thought that was, that was good advice because it's the right thing to do is to, you know, you take every one of those errors that happens in production and say, Hey, after I deploy this fix, I am sure that this one will never happen again because my test suite's protecting me. That's good advice. And I think the sort of thing that, someone in the intermediate kind of phase of their development would probably get wrong a decent portion of the time. Yeah. For me doing that actually started from a little bit of laziness in that uh, it just took so long to exercise some of these things through the browser that, Oh, I could just write a test and that way I could run it over and over and over and over and over again as I was trying to fix the bug. And, uh, and so um, at that point it's like, okay, well the fact that it's not going to happen again is kind of a little bit of a bonus, but um, you know, it's, it's good for both ways. It's um it's good both as a uh, pr- to prevent against the regressions to prevent against it happening again, but also for saving you some time um, if you don't have to or if you have to go through a bunch of different steps in order to exercise it in the first place. So you didn't say this in the book, and I actually think you sort of said the opposite. But I, I've learned to to see if I ever type in Rails server or you know form and start whatever way you're starting your server environment or Rails console, that's like a smell to me, like. Like, I'm not saying I shouldn't do it, and obviously you have to for some things, but that if I was to, like, if there was a way or I created a way to manage or to monitor how many minutes per day I had either a Rails server or a Rails console running on my development machine, that the higher that number is, the worse my programming was that day. I'm almost sure of it. You know? Yeah. Because it means I'm sort of flailing. I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm flailing and being inefficient to your point about laziness. Uh, yeah, I didn't talk too much about that in the context of, of testing, but I did talk a little bit about that in the, uh, the chapter about, um, using the, the tiny apps to, uh, to build your knowledge, um, talking about how you can use the, you don't like if something doesn't have to be exercised through the web, then 
probably it's a good idea not to exercise it through the web because it's going to be a whole lot faster to do it through the console or through a test. Yeah. Um, for finding bugs, though, I, I've usually found it uh, helpful to just use every single tool that I have at my disposal. So uh, if, you know, using a web browser, using unit tests, using the console, just using everything I can in order to get to the bottom of it. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Once once you can't figure out what the heck's going on, I think all bets are off. I think you, um, uh, to jump ahead to, yeah, and then I'm going to come back to testing for a while, but to jump ahead to later in the book, you have a section on debugging that I thought was excellent, really good, and I think very practical for anyone at any stage of their sort of development learning path. Um, and one thing that you, uh, I, I think talked about in that chapter was using Bybug, which is like the new debugger. And like, to me, that's the, it was good. I, when I read that, it reminded me I should be using it more. And to me, that's the best way to, to drop into a console. In other words, if I'm, if I'm going rails console, I, I try to ask myself first, um, would it be better to sort of enter Rails console through the through Bybug in the test at the point that I would like to be exploring things in the console? And the answer is almost always yes for me. Like that's almost always where I'd rather be because they're set up, and then I get to sort of interact with the world as it exists in the point that I want want to. But I thought that I thought your section on on debugging was good because it covered like all sorts of angles, you know, all all sorts of approaches you can use to get a handle on what's going on. And I thought that was good because you're right. Once things are going wrong, you want more tools, not less. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, at one of my early jobs, I just kind of lived in the command line debugger. So that's always been a little, or pretty familiar to me. Um, but I can totally understand how you you might not even know what a debugger is, um, or, or how to use it or just kind of the default to it. Well, especially in in Ruby development and most open source development, where the IDE is a you know is a text editor and a command a shell, that it, it's not as front and center as IDEs that are sort of built around the idea of stepping through code. Um, yeah. You know. On the on the other hand, uh, I also have some coworkers that uh, they use RubyMine solely for the debugging because the debugging in it is really good. It's a you know whole visual debugger and everything. I can't. You know, I. I I think I've downloaded RubyMine like three times. I don't think I've ever even installed that though. I don't, I, I kind of feel, I, I, it feels like bad luck to me to go against the sort of community flow so much. That's just not how the community does it. So it's hard for me to imagine that it's the right thing for me, but maybe I'm wrong. Like I haven't even really explored. Yeah. I have a, like I said, I have a few coworkers that kind of swear by it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, Emacs. So, Oh really? Yep. Yeah. I'm not, I, 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 not, I don't want to devolve into a text editor conversation, but the, I'm, I, I try to go with the least finicky option I can at any point in time. Um, which at the moment is, I like the idea of Adam, but, um, so I'm using that right now, but I wouldn't say I'm devoted to it. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll sometimes make, um, you know, bad decisions about where I spend my time learning. Uh, I, like I type on Dvorak, I use Emacs as my text editor and that kind of thing. Oh, and they really? work for me. Yeah. Oh, they, they work for me now, but, uh, it's, it's like, you know, if, uh, if I was totally optimizing for value, uh, against time spent that like those wouldn't even be on the map. Oh, Hey, like we said, nerds are going to nerd. Or I said, exactly. <laughs> so back to testing. I think that the, uh, one thing that I, I don't recall if it was in the book or not, but <clears throat> I was thinking about in the testing chapter is. But for me, you know, people used to talk about pair programming all the time. And now it feels like I hear a little bit less about it, but 
Um, it's still a thing, obviously. But to me, um, like TDD is the best pair of programming because you don't have the hassle of having two people, which is, you know, expensive and a pain logistically, etc. Uh, I also don't really like it that much for other reasons. Um, but you get the benefits of it, which is like, you can act as the second through your tests, you know, it ends up being that you, it's just less lonely to me to program when you're testing, because, you know, if I'm going to program for six to 12 hours in a given day, um, uh, during my like peak energy moments, I probably could get by without tests and not produce a ton of bugs on simpler stuff. But you know, there's going to be a, a sort of curve of energy through the day and at least half the day, I'll be a little bit tired and tests make it not that hard to program when I'm kind of tired because the, the, it's sort of like, it wouldn't be that hard to program if you're pair programming, if you're a little bit tired and then there's something else to bounce ideas off of. You know, you're kind of like rubber ducking, but but actually in the code, not just, you know, in words. And like for me, if, if that was the only benefit I got from TDD, I think I'd still do it. It just, it, it makes programming less solitary, but doesn't involve other people, <laughs> which is, <laughs> maybe I'm revealing something about my yeah. personality, but. Uh, I actually, yeah, I, I do see that, that kind of benefit. It's, um. I've always found the hardest thing to do, uh, the hardest thing to, uh, to be to start. So getting that first line of code written, getting that first uh, little sketch des- uh, drawn, that kind of thing. And I've, both pair programming and, and TDD um, help out with that, but they, they kind of help out in different ways, I think. So with TDD, it's, it's usually easier to think about how you would use something than how you would design it. And... So being starting from your tests and starting from a, a high level, okay, like this, this is what I'm going to do first, and then this is what I'm going to do, and this is what the API is going to look like because this is the way that in a dream world I would be able to use this this API. Um, that can usually be enough to to get that first couple lines of code written, and like even we've been talking about, get those guardrails so that you stay on the right track. Uh, with pairing, also, it's you kind of have a little bit of that um, the accountability or the motivation where. If you're getting stuck, you have somebody else to kind of think through, uh, or that's also been thinking through the same problem that might be able to get that first line written, um, or vice versa. Yeah, I, I, like this is probably unfair, and I think pairing. You know, there are obviously many smart people that like to pair, and I I trust their judgment for them. But to me, pairing just feels like kind of like lazy TDD. Uh, like you know, in other words, like. It, yeah, you just said it really that it, it, it's something to help. It's a guardrail on motivation. And then if you're sitting next to someone, you kind of have to propel forward, but it just doesn't smell quite right to me. It seems like there are better ways to get that same benefit, but you know, maybe I just haven't seen the light on it. Cause again, there are smart people that clearly like it. Um, yeah. I've never been one to, uh, to pair exclusively, but I don't know that I found a better way to get, um, to get new hires up to speed to, uh, to help, um, more like more junior people pick up uh, more complicated parts of the code base or more complicated parts of the framework and um, and just kind of uh, start to succeed on the team, although you do need to have people that are both that are into it and uh, people that are experienced enough with pairing to be able to communicate that rather than just grabbing the keyboard every time that somebody uh, gets stuck for more than a minute or two All right and not to like you know hammer and nail this one but the other thing that I've found very helpful for that objective is a great test suite and good documentation. If you've got a great test suite and good documentation, it's not that hard to get up to speed on things. Um, 
if you don't have those things, if the test suite's a little shaky and or if the documentation's not that good, or if, you know, I'll, I'll include in that if your public API on classes is too broad because you haven't been sort of diligent about um, at least marking things as private. However, you know, in Ruby, obviously, you can use whatever methods you want, but at least if you, you know, if you as a team are diligent about saying, Hey, these six methods are the public API for this class and everything else consider private. So just don't, you know, don't trust it. Don't, don't subclass it, et cetera, or don't override it in a subclass or whatever. Then, uh, you know, it's not that hard to come up to speed when you've got that kind of, it's sort of like a gem. If a gem has those things true, it's pretty easy to use the gem. And if it doesn't, then you're like, uh Oh, I don't want to use that. If someone has the, the same, you know, when I think you cover that in the book actually, but if someone has the same approach for their internal apps that you have for gems, well, you know, then I don't think you need the pairing to sort of make up for the, for the gap. But if you don't have those, then sure you do. Cause otherwise how are they going to figure it out? So yeah, talking of uh, of public and private and and that kind of thing, I I saw something interesting the other day, which was the suggestion to just drop the private keyword entirely from Ruby because it really doesn't mean much. It just means you have to go through send instead. Uh, I mean, every, everything in Ruby is is really kind of public except for the way that you have to call it. Um, but in that case, also um, or having your private API indicated by like a leading underscore or two leading underscores. Uh, both because that makes it a little bit uglier when external classes are depending on that private API, but also for signifying that your uh, what in your inside your class is actually a public API or private API. Yeah, I, I saw I saw that too. I think uh, um, who said it first? I, I I I think I saw the conversation from um, Jameis Buck. I think he said something related to that, and and I saw the chatter, and I kind of agree with that actually. I think. Like, I think that the distinction between public and private is important, but not, I don't want, like, I like how Ruby handles it. I don't want Ruby to enforce it. Like, I want to be able to call send if I needed to on something. I, I like that about Ruby. And I find it, a quick side note, I find it very strange when Rubyists bitch about that part of Ruby. Like, well, yeah. that's Ruby. What do you, I mean, you can't, that's like being mad at your funny friend for saying things that are stupid sometimes like he's your funny friend you can't be your funny friend or you can't be your funny friend without saying some things that are stupid that comes with the territory like you know ruby allows you to do things that can get you in trouble because it's that's the nature of what ruby is and if you don't want that then go java yeah it's absolutely one of the reasons that i originally was excited about ruby was the fact that all of this stuff that i had to do crazy workarounds in java for um and looked just absolutely horrific in Java was actually pretty easy in Ruby. And it's more of a, like, you shouldn't do this more than a, you really, 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 really shouldn't do this. Yeah. But I like the ability to, you know, I'd oh, much, totally. I'd much, I, I like the Ruby trade and like, yes, it, it's a trade. Nothing's free and you pay for it, but I think it's a good, good bargain. But back to, mm -hmm. back to the point you're making. I, um, I have not gone with the underscore prefix as, the standard to to signify that a method is sort of private in concept, whether or not it's private in you know in fact in the in the class. But I think it's a good idea. I think I probably should. And I think you're right about the reasons. I think it's ugly, and ugly is good. You know, like ugly. Uh, it, it's a good reminder that the thing's public. I mean, I've gone to public send on everything to avoid to sort of get the same benefits. But if I accidentally didn't do that or just had the object itself and was calling it, uh, it wouldn't be as obvious as if it was underscores. And, and I think there are also cases, and I've seen this in a bunch of gems, where you need, for a variety of reasons, 
for a method to be public actually, but not treat it as public by users. You know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like, like a, uh, an API private or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And I think API privates are, you know, public in Ruby, but underscored for sort of purposes of communication. And I think that's the best case, the best, uh, um, uh, best made case for why that's the right strategy because you know anyone that's written or or contributed to a decent number of libraries has seen that example where you need something that's like api private uh mm-hmm. or api public and and uh, i think your suge- what you just relate is suggestions a pretty good way to get that done yeah i'm with you i haven't actually tried it but it's something that i'm kind of considering trying on a small scale in uh, maybe a next side project or something yeah i've got a couple of apps that are like not in their infancy but wouldn't be awful to convert to that. Uh, you know, there may be like a thousand lines of code or 500 lines of code or something. And I think I may do it on a couple just to see how it looks. Uh, and I suspect I'll probably go to it. Uh, I, the, I, I don't see the case to not, you know, I, yeah. see, I just see the upside. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I think that that's, that's it for me on testing. I think kind of t- to summarize my take on the book, I think the book, really manages the balance very well because I think it's a very difficult um, topic to talk to intermediate programmers about because like I think like if I was being direct I would say hey listen once you're a better programmer you'll be able to use those skills to be great at testing and testing will make you a better programmer even than you were going in with that level of skill but you don't get there directly you first just have to be an okay programmer to be an okay you know, tester and, you know, see that as the prize down the road, not as the way to the prize, at least to the extent that, you know, you're not able to do what you wish you could do right now. But that's, you know, people are, I think all people are a bit impatient. So that's a little bit of a frustrating message. Yeah. And I think I talk about this a little bit in the book. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of mini test. I'm probably in the vast minority on that one, uh, in the, the Ruby and rails community. Uh, but one thing I like about it is that it makes that obvious that the the skills that you build as you uh, like factor your code better or uh, just kind of get become a better developer in general translate directly to better tests, better factored tests, um, the ability to uh, group things together in modules and classes rather than in um, like in, in contexts and things like that. So I I'm, I'll confess that. I think that you made the case for mini test well uh, in the book, but like I had the emoji shrug reaction of like, man, I use our spec. Yeah, <laughs> like even though like I thought you made it well, I was like, okay, I think I think these are pretty solid arguments. I, I think that at this point there just isn't as much of a distinction between the two as there once was. Like I'll give an example in in the in the book, you devote like a paragraph or two to the confusion around how when you say test space, you know quotes name of test so if it's like test foo does bar that that translates into a method or you don't actually say this but it translates into if you want to call it by name test underscore foo underscore does underscore bar well i thought that was very ironic given your pitch about mini test in that you could have just written it as def test foo does bar because that's actually what's going on right when you say de- test foo does bar it's just making a method called Def test Fudo's bar, uh, so which is very R specy, which, which is the reason I thought it was ironic. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of an inconsistency there, and it's those those apostrophes every single time that get me. Yeah, so like I, 
I think that uh, mini test has become more RSpec like, obviously, um, given the the syntax that people often use, and RSpec has become more mini test like, and that you know, at least for me, I, I always run and disable monkey patching now, and you know all the things that people didn't like about. Um, the monkey patching that it did are gone and the, the is expected syntax I think is, is nice and that it doesn't rely on that. And I think that your point about, about, uh, how mini test allows you to sort of refactor in a way that's more consistent with how you'll refactor in your apps is true. Um, you still refactor the same way in our spec. It just so happens that you also have to know kind of the R spec DSL in order to do that effectively, which is like yet another thing to learn. But I thought it was fun. I, 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 there's something interesting to me about that you made the, and I've heard other people make those points effectively and I kind of agree with them and still prefer our spec and I haven't exactly figured out why. Yeah. So at work, we're actually reading um, the rails for test prescriptions book. Uh, and I, I really like that approach uh, where the, the book itself is all written in our spec but the I, I think the source that's on uh, that's on GitHub or wherever is they actually have an RSpec version and a mini test version of every example in the book. Oh heck! Uh, and then there's a chapter in between that kind of says like this is how you can translate some of the examples from RSpec into mini test. And you know it might not be uh, idiomatic or it might not be the best factored mini test, but at least there you can kind of see the um, like the mapping between the RSpec way of doing things and the mini test way of doing things. Yeah. I think for me, yeah, so I think that that's cool. I think for me, like once you're down a path on R spec or mini test, like whatever, I'm just going to keep using what I use. And I, I work on enough open source projects that use mini tests that I'm obviously comfortable with it. Uh, you know, it's, it's no real, it's just writing Ruby. Um, and it's not like the DSL is complicated or anything. I think the other direction may be a little bit weirder. Um, going from mini test to R spec if someone used very R specy syntax everywhere. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, for, uh, pick, pick a direction. I think you'll be fine. Yeah. For me, it's always just been the just to use something. Yeah. I'm, I'm in that category too. Uh, I think I probably have some emotional attachment to RSpec because that's, it was a very big, like three months of my life when I really felt like I learned to test for the first time and RSpec was the way that I did it. So I think I, I've got like a first love thing going on there. All right, so this is a good timing. I should take a quick break and read today's sponsor because it sort of relates to this topic as we transition out of testing. Okay? All right. All right. So today's... I've got to put on my glasses. This is the old man moment of the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> the microphone's like sort of too far from the laptop screen. It's further than I usually stand away from it. And uh, right. without glasses, I can't read it. Okay. So... Uh, today's sponsor, uh, as it has been many times, is CodeShip. So CodeShip is continuous delivery made simple. It's based on usability, so everything is designed to be as easy to use as possible. In fact, CodeShip listened to all the feedback that their users uh, gave recently, and they redesigned their entire application. They actually sort of rolled it out in phases, so it didn't exactly feel like a big bang redesign because I'm a, I'm a daily user of CodeShip, but uh, at this point, most things are redesigned. So not only does it look better, uh, it's also got a bunch of usability improvements uh, to make things even easier to use than they were before. You can set up continuous integration uh, in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. <clears throat> You've got great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. Integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket on the 
code hosting side. And you can deploy to whatever, you know, whatever, whether it's uh, Heroku or AWS or Nojitsu or your own servers or whatever. They just launched a brand new feature called Parallel CI. Uh, Parallel CI allows for faster testing than ever before. You set up test pipelines, so you sort of declare each test pipeline and say, like, run these testing commands in pipeline one and those testing commands in pipeline two, and then they'll run in parallel in order to finish faster. Pretty cool feature. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, I've used it, works, works just as advertised. Early access customers were able to improve their development speed or deployment speed uh, uh, tremendously. And uh, it's a pretty good uh, value too. Anyhow, CodeShip has a free plan so anyone can try it out. It includes 100 builds per month and five private projects just you know for free. And uh, in their pricing, I won't go into it now, but I, I'm a paying customer and I think their pricing in general is quite a good deal. So you can find more out about CodeShip at CodeShip.com. Check out their blog at blog.codeship.com and use the offer code 5x5Ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. I sort of think that CodeShip is your kindred spirit, by the way, because like, you are so disciplined about how you communicate you know, mm-hmm. on, on email and about the book and on your blog and by Twitter, just tremendously disciplined and, uh, uh, very professional. And they're the same way. Like I'm constantly amazed by, by how effective their communication is in every channel. So thanks to coach. Yeah. All right. So we talked testing a lot, which I enjoyed, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, as you know, you, you start talking about thing after thing after thing, and then you get to testing, and all of a sudden, like, uh, they're, you know, Rubyists just keep talking and talking and talking, and it's a, a subject that you can just go deeper and deeper into forever. And I think that might be one of those reasons why it's so intimidating. Yeah. Well, I think that I, I've learned that the the audience for the podcast is more than any other demographic. The kind of, um, I, I think that the biggest demographic for the podcast is the the demographic that this book was written for. Um, which I like, I, I think I like it for the same reasons that you probably like it. Mm-hmm. And I like talking about it because I think, I think it's good for, you know, two people that are more experienced, uh, now to chat about it with some nuance and talk about kind of the benefits without making it scary. And, you know, like your book does. And, you know, since a lot of people that listened are in that space, I think it's nice to have the, the chat go there. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, uh, we talked about the sort of what you need to learn and what you can skip chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I sort of imagined when I read that, that you may have more there that, that felt like a, like could be an entire book, could be a blog post series, could be a, you know, could, could almost be even the way that like a code school type, um, service is organized around these like learning paths. And maybe they sort of are actually, um, is that right? Is this like a, an area that you find particularly interesting or is it was just like another chapter in the book and I, I saw too much into it? No, I do. I actually find that the, that whole chapter really interesting because that's kind of the way that I learned is I, um, I started, I, I, uh, went go after book after book after book and just kind of like suck in as much knowledge as I can and try to retain as much as I can so that I can keep, uh, keep using it to build things. And so kind of going back and looking back and saying, okay, well, these are the ones that actually helped me get to the, like, really get to the point that I am right now. 
And these are the ones that, you know, you are still valuable, but you can wait a little bit for them or, uh, or maybe the ones that just don't really apply quite as much anymore. Um, those ones you could probably skip for now. Yeah. It's hard to know. It's hard to know what you can skip for now. I know. And that's, it's like, you don't need to know everything to start running Rails apps. But there's a core that just is useful in so many apps that if you invest really heavily in mastering that core, um, it will, you know, that, that investment will pay it, repay itself uh, over time. I found your, um, I found your chapter. Was it, I think it's the next, the next and final chapter about keeping up with the Rails community. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, no, the, the, it's the second to last chapter is keeping up with the Rails community. Yeah. Really fascinating because you talked about. Uh, so the idea is like, hey, you can you can just get overwhelmed with Twitter and blogs and Hacker News and Reddit, and how, how do you t- figure out sort of what to spend your time on and what not to spend your time on? Um, so I found it very interesting because I've never read Hacker News, and yeah, yeah, and I, I kind of feel like this is like the programming version of pot for me. I was never a pot smoker, <laughs> and like at some point I was like, I think this is just good. Like, I think that I'm, I think I'm better for this. Like, you know, not to say that it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be fun to read Hacker News or Smoke Pot, but I don't. And like, I see other people wrestling with the trade-off of, oh, I like it, but what's it done to my life? And I, I like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that ever happened that I didn't read Hacker News, but I haven't. And your, your book convinced me that maybe I'm on the right track. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of hit and miss. Uh, I used to just head, uh, head over there, like probably once every two hours or something like that and check out the news stories and the comments and all that kind of thing. And, um, I've drifted away a lot from it over the past couple of years. Um, not, not to say that it's like getting worse because, um, you know, that's what everybody says about every single community every single year, but it's, it's more like, you know, looking back and I, oh, I spent two hours reading this comment thread and what did I actually get out of it? Probably not all that much, actually. Uh, well, maybe it's a, not getting worse, but you're getting better. Maybe. It's, like it's relatively getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> but well, like for some of that stuff, it's like I'd rather just somebody tell me the interesting stuff or like wait for the interesting stuff to surface in other places. And um, I mean, sure, I probably miss a ton now that I was getting before, but um, the the everybody always says the, the important stuff will surface. And for the most part, that's accurate. I think probably about... 80, 90% of the stuff that you would really get value from is going to surface in other ways. Oh, I totally agree with that. I, I, I think that that's an interesting kind of exercise for someone is to try to come up with, come up with an example, like in the last six months of something that, uh, is important to, you know, your programming life that, uh, did not surface like kind of bubble up if you just that we would have to pick like a you know number of you know filters that you're going to monitor but the dozen bubble up through the filter and the answer the number is going to be so low mm-hmm. i think yeah i mean the, the problem i still have is everyone still i'll read a blog post i'm like oh man they're having such a great argument in hacker news right now i know it and then i'll like dive in there and lose an hour and <laughs> i don't know that that'll ever go away i don't know well, i think i'm just gonna like maybe that'd be maybe that would happen to me. I'm just going to avoid it. <laughs> I think probably a good idea. I don't think I've got the time. <laughs> well, on that point, so I track my time pretty carefully, mm-hmm. and man, there aren't better many better strategies to avoid doing stupid stuff than tracking your time. Oh, totally. Because either you got one of two options: either you're going to lie to yourself, 
or to whoever you're tracking time for, if you have to track it to someone else and say like, I was doing task a, when really I was like 40%, you know, playing with myself. Yeah. And, in which case, like, what's the point, right? Yeah. And if, and if you're just tracking it for yourself and lying, like I even like the idea that knowing that I'm tracking time sort of means that anytime I steal away from the task to go check Twitter, at least I like have to have the conversation with myself, which is like, do I have to inhale and just take a break for a second in order to continue? In other words, and in that case, it's okay. But if, am I just like full of it and doing that because it's fun instead of working, which is hard. And in mm-hmm. which case, like, am I really going to lie to myself? Like, am I really that guy? Like, I like having to have that conversation and, and tracking time is like the guarantee to have it. Yeah, exactly. A little bit life hacky, but what the hell? <laughs> I guess it is. I guess it is kind of life hacky. Uh, some of those things actually make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, like the whole Dr. Phil, if you want to lose weight, don't put, you know, focus on what's in the pantry. You know, like mm-hmm. that sort of stuff is very goofy sounding, but kind of kind of true. Yeah, with so much of that stuff, it's just trying to make sure that the benefits outweigh the costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enforcing choice. I think explicit choice is a huge idea. Like, yeah, know, try, try to drive out of the shadows your choices, and when you do, you'll generally make good calls. But it's the uh, like the whole I, I want to watch this show on TV versus the I wonder what's on TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and, and just watch how less you watch if you <laughs> exactly. explicitly choose. Okay, so the last chapter, and then and then I want to have a bit of uh, just a short meta f- sort of wrap up is uh, how do you learn Rails when you don't have the time? Okay, so the, the, your big suggestion in this chapter, uh, not to like spoiler alert the entire book through this whole conversation. But no, totally. Yeah. The 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 big suggestion is that if you have forty minutes, that's enough to like chip away, and that. Uh, uh, the Seinfeld method plus 40 minutes a day is like the best, best approach to at least make sure you're making progress. Do you think that's a fair summary of what you said? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I have some, uh, some more detail about like where the, like the Seinfeld method has fallen down for me and, and some, uh, other suggestions about, um, like where, where to spend the 40 minutes, where to find it, like that kind of thing. But yeah, in general, that's, uh, that's a good uh, summary of it. I find 40 minutes, I found the 40 minutes bit to be the most uh, controversial in my own, <laughs> in my own head, mm-hmm. which is I, I am very kind of jealous of very long stretches of time. Like, so my ideal programming window is like six hours, I'd say. Yeah. Like I like huge stretches uninterrupted and not like, I mean, uninterrupted, not just by the outside world, but by me, like where I just do that. Um, and 40 minutes feels like so little time that it almost stressed me out. But I think that your, your chapter was smart and then it said, Hey, like life's busy. You've got kids and family and a job and whatever the hell else. And, and like, what's the least amount that you can at least be productive with. And you kind of sold me that 40 minutes maybe was that amount, but it still felt a little bit bad to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you actually. I mean, I, uh, I love having big, huge chunks of time to like, to not do anything except focus on exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, but with me, it's, it's like if I was waiting for those big, huge chunks of time to come before I started doing what I need to do, then I would probably sit down and I would maybe do like, if I was doing that for the book, for instance, uh, I would have maybe sat down once a week and spent some time writing it. And like, how long would that have taken? Right. Um, but chipping away at it, like 40 minutes to an hour at a time every single day, uh, eventually gets like, got me to the point that it was, uh, something shippable. And the same thing has kind of gone with side projects. Right. Um, 
I don't think any of my side projects I've had a uninterrupted time of more than two hours to actually work on something. And yeah, it, uh, it makes you good at leaving leaving projects in a state where you can pick them up right away, which is really a great ta- a great skill to develop. Yeah, uh, especially as uh, as things get busier and busier at you know whatever your day job happens to be, that's just going to be something that you might have to uh, have to get good at. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the cutting room floor. Do you, uh, what chapter? And I've got, I've got one that uh, I've got in mind, but I'm interested in in your thoughts a lot. So, what chapter didn't make it that if you had more time, if you had another forty minutes a day for a while, you would have gotten in? Um, so there wasn't anything that I, that I really wanted to squeeze in, um, without, or like that I really wanted to squeeze in, uh, at the last minute I had, I had a mostly solid outline, um, before I started and that was more or less what came in. Um, if, <laughs> if humble brag, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if anything, like I wanted to, uh, I would have added a chapter on, um, some sort of like uh, data modeling or, uh, advanced associations or that kind of thing. Um, but that's almost a big enough topic that you could form, you know, you're like your own book or something on that. Um, so that I don't think was ever really an option. I um, think you're right that that, that topic wise for the, the target demographic of the book, that's a very smart area to focus on. Mm-hmm. Cause cause like, you know, some huge number of problems are caused by crappy modeling by intermediate programmers that if they modeled it in a more elegant way, everything would get easy. Yeah, maybe in a second edition or something. Yeah, um, but there was there was one chapter that I ended up uh, cutting out fairly early after I had written it, maybe um, around the second draft of the book, but before I released it for pre-release. That was kind of a um, it was a kind of an overview of um, being overwhelmed and where the uh, where over like the feeling of overwhelm comes from and why Rails is like so specifically overwhelm uh, overwhelming for these people that have you know pretty much succeeded in everything else that they've done. Um, and that I, I cut because it was so much to me, it it seemed so much, uh, more valuable to show those things through the, uh, through the advice that, uh, I gave throughout the book, um, about trying things out on a smaller scale, about, um, getting started with something about leaving things to the point where you can, uh, you can pick them up right away when you come back to them that the, that chapter felt, felt, uh, very, um, like very tell and not so much show. Mm. So you made it like a thread, not a chapter. Exactly. Yeah. Successfully. I'd say if I was, if I described the book to someone, I'd say it's like, uh, you know, self helpy guide to getting beyond beginner intermediate to a more confident place as a rails developer, which I think is what you just sort of described as that chapter. Yeah, and that, I think that's something that we uh, talked a little bit about last time, which is um, the the th- whole uh, story of the book came from the uh, like the people that I had been talking to on my mailing list and through the blog, and um, just some of the most common problems that they came up with that are they're more about becoming a good developer than becoming a good Rails developer specifically, uh, but that the tutorials and the books that are focused a little bit more on Rails, um, if they cover them, they cover them more in passing. Yep. So I, I uh, any interest in entertaining my chapter suggestions? Uh, which which ones were those again? I haven't added. I haven't said them yet. Okay. <laughs> so I uh, say, did I miss something? No, 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 no. I said any interest. So I here's uh, here's something I've been focused on a decent amount lately that I think is perfect for a book like this one, which is 
how to be effective with asynchronous communication. Because, so, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that, that a huge, like, I, I see this big, almost like the TDD transition, like the, the kind of productivity and performance enhancement that comes with, with learning how to test effectively. I think there's a similar bump in productivity and uh, just capability, not just productivity, but like the, uh, the ceiling gets raised when people learn how to communicate asynchronously. Like as in, you know, they don't need to have the person in the same place at the same time. If like, if you look how, you know, all communication happens on GitHub, basically, right. That, that everything is done when people have time and never at the same time. And that transition is really, really hard for people to make that aren't used to it. At least in, in what I see, like yeah. very difficult. And it's a gigantic win if you can figure it out. Right. Because now you're not forced. It, you, it, the reason that I, I thought of it is your chapter that has the idea about the 40 minutes a day, that 40 minutes a day can be so powerful if everything you do is asynchronous, because now you can, you know, arrange that into the 10 o'clock to midnight hour and still be as productive as if it was during the day, because the way you communicate with the rest of the world isn't, you know, doesn't depend on them being present. In, you know, at the same time, at the very least. Uh, and it feels like a topic that I don't see written enough about and is especially helpful for this demographic that I think struggles quite a bit with, with at least from what I see with that transition. Do you think that's, what, what do you think about that? That's actually really interesting. When you said asynchronous communication, I'm thinking like, okay, well, like rescue, Ajax, <laughs> like that kind of thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, that's a, that's actually a really interesting topic. Um, it's something that I would have to do a fair amount of research on because I, I have to admit that I'm probably not that great at it myself. Um, uh, it, it's man. Every time I feel like I need to talk to someone, this is like, if I, if I type in rails server or rails console, I, I see that as like a programming smell. If ever I have the need to have a live communication with someone, it's a huge smell for me that like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why don't I feel like how much time would it take me to have that conversation versus how much did it take me to compose my thoughts and write them clearly? And how much more respectful is it to do that to that person, to let them use time in whatever their schedule allows and also give them, afford them the opportunity to be thoughtful in their reply. Um, instead of, you know, just replying with whatever comes to mind. You know, and which can be difficult depending on when you catch them. They may not be the optimal time for them to think. Uh, and man, I, 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 it's interesting to me. It's not a bigger focus right now. Like, I just don't see it talked about as much as it seems to be important. And, uh, yeah, anyways. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely an important topic. And, um, uh, with, with me, it's, it's really hard because, you know, we have all the tools. We have, uh, you know, hip chat, uh, we have email, we have all these, um, these different, uh, like the different tools at, at work and stuff. Um, but there's just, it's so much easier and higher bandwidth to have a conversation with three people around a whiteboard sometimes. Um, and especially when it comes to, okay, well, we need to make sure that everybody's on, uh, on a hangout or on Skype or something. And, uh, you dial somebody in and they don't pick up and it's like, okay, well, what now? <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so building that, um, that kind of culture is probably the first major step that needs to happen for that kind of thing. 
Um, either that or just getting better at succinctly describing the types of, uh, like the types of problems that you're trying to solve and giving options and then kind of asynchronously narrowing those options down and that kind of thing, which, um, to me doesn't, it takes less total time, but more clock time. I see the in-person like meetings, like you described is also very valuable. Like, you know, three of us get around a whiteboard and talk for two hours about, you know, some big topic. So it's not that I don't find that valuable, but I sort of see it like I see like company picnics or frankly, even going to the office to be honest, which is like a something done not frequently. And and if you did it all the time, it it wouldn't be interesting at all to me. Like a company picnic every day sounds awful. Mm -hmm. A company picnic once a quarter. Okay. Okay. That's fun. You know, like big uh, in-person talks are like a, a very interesting event to me that sh- should you should be able to build on for you know, to kind of mine the value out of for months and months. And then besides that, try to drive as much of the conversation asynchronous as possible because I think it's the most respectful way to work. Um, yeah, I I totally agree with you. Like it's something that I would love to get better at doing. Um, I, I just don't have those habits yet. And maybe that's the first step. Yeah. So there we go. There's my request. I'm in, I love right. writing and I would like that. <laughs> I would like that, that book. All right. Um, okay. My, my last one about a suggestion and then we'll get into our close here mm-hmm. is, you know, you kind of cover it a little bit in the book about, about, um, web client frameworks or JavaScript frameworks, whatever you want to call them. Um, and like the, the feel I got from your comment was that like, while you kind of think it'd be a good idea to talk about something like how to integrate rails with a front end framework, mm-hmm. uh, that it's just like too overwhelming. And you, you kind of had a similar tone with that about, as you did about testing, like you kind of hinted that maybe you think it's an important topic, but even more so than testing, think it's just going to increase complexity way too much for, for at this point in time. Did I read that right? Or were you just sort of acknowledging that that thing exists for the sake of sort of comprehensiveness? Um, you're, you're right for the most part. Uh, I, I don't have, I mean, I have some experience with front end JavaScript frameworks, but, uh, for most smaller apps, I've found that the, like the, I guess 37 signals call or base camp calls them, uh, like server rendered JavaScript or something like that uh, has been a decent approach in, at least until I start doing more than one thing at a time inside those um, the Ajax responses. And so I don't think that that's a bad start is, uh, is starting with what Rails gives you and then um, starting to be sensitive to the pain that you start to feel as your app gets more complex and at that point start trying to bring in a, um, a client-side job uh, or the... Um, client side JavaScript frameworks, either that, or if you have like a specific design that you have your heart set on or something like that, it seems like it would probably be a good idea too. I feel like a book or chapter blog that's kind of needed is, would be written in the, the tone that you write in. And it'd basically be about like, Hey, a, a no hype, no snark introduction to our JavaScript future for server centric developers because like I am absolutely a server centric developer, right? Like I'm fast and efficient and completely comfortable with all things, you know, Ruby and server and rails, not all things, but you know, enough Mm -hmm. things. Um, 
But to me, it is plain as the big nose on my face that very few interesting apps won't, won't be written in JavaScript frameworks in the next five years. I just don't buy it. Like, I, I, like I, I think I've seen the future, and I just can't imagine that that's not where we're going. And I don't like the conversations that happen about it because they're just too immature. Like, I think, like, I, I want more mature dialogue about, you know, what are the trade-offs? How are the trade-offs getting bent? In other words, like, right now, one of the big trade-offs would be the initial page load and, you know, the time for the JavaScript app in your browser to download and then boot itself and then render the page. And that's a big trade-off, right? Because it's nice to have that first page be fast. But what if that's solved, which it's going to be shortly, it'll be solved this year. You know what? Then Mm -hmm. you say, geez, the biggest trade-off you don't even have to make anymore. And the upside is gigantic, except for a little complexity versus what we're used to, but not really much complexity. It's just once we're used to it, then it's, it's fine. And I, I, I've had the, like, so I've been on a few podcasts to talk about the basic topic and I, the response I get is amazing. People are like, oh man, I used to be a hater, but it turns out I just was afraid. And like, I, that used to be a hater, but turns out I was afraid just seems like the tone you write for, you know, Mm -hmm. a very adult kind of, let's just talk about it tone. So I'd, I'd love to hear you write about that topic. I think you do a good job. Thank you. Like, yeah, it's definitely something that I want to uh, to learn more about and uh, play around with a little bit more. Uh, it just, uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's one of those the first things that I just haven't really been able to get excited about yet, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. Uh, so maybe it's just uh, I need to play around with it a little bit more until it actually starts to click. Have you created an Ember app? Uh, yeah, I did uh, pretty early on, but I haven't tried it, uh, tried it recently. Okay, so I'm going to sell you for one minute on this. All right. So with the current Ember tools, uh, like so Ember CLI, which is their um, uh, the, the sort of build tool suite, you can kind of imagine it as like the Rails G, Rails server, like the Rails command mm-hmm. for Ember plus the build tooling that makes uh, kind of uh, makes it straightforward to, to add things to your Ember app and then build and deploy the assets. But anyway, so you use Ember CLI and uh, all the sort of new goodness from Ember and Ember data and make an app because um, things have changed a lot in the last couple of years. And then uh, uh, take an hour and wa- so no, first thing, watch the Ember Conf keynote from this year and then, right. you know, build a basic, uh, a very simple app if that seems interesting. And if you can come through watching like that keynote and then build building the basic app and not be excited, I'd be shocked. Cool. I, th- I think it's, it's exciting for anyone that, that, uh, like you sort of yearns for pulling off better stuff. All right. Yeah. Make sure you put that link in the show notes. Cause, uh, I do want to take a look at that. We'll do. Uh, I also, so I, every podcast, I, uh, promote my two favorite projects right now. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, JSON API mm-hmm. uh, is about to hit 1.0 after significant revisions, which I think frustrated some people, but it was the right thing to do. But it'll yeah. hit 1.0 probably this week. Okay. And then it'll lock. Uh, I will be shocked if it doesn't become the sort of standard. I uh, think it is a home run. Which one is that? Sorry. So JSON API, the idea is that, you know, uh, that every API uh, it sort of follows its own conventions around things like, uh, 
how does it represent its type when things are polymorphic? How does it deal with relationships that are, has one, or, you know, belongs to or has one, but where there's one, where there's many, how does it deal with updating relationships? How does it deal with linking to relationships? Um, how does it deal with serialization of attributes, right? Like there are all these choices about both the sort of serialization and the server behavior on controller actions for APIs. And JSON API says we are going to, uh, as a community, sort of adopt a, a standard that represents the best thinking that we can come up with over years on what those choices should be. And then if a server conforms to JSON API, you can count on it. And then libraries are built around then consuming and interacting with that API or creating the API. Okay. So you're, yeah, you're talking about the, uh, the spec, right? The spec. Yep. Cool. It is a one, a, a monster effort. I mean, just look at the number of issues that are created a day on it. It is an unbelievable accomplishment to have shepherded the sort of effort through the community by the guys that are doing it. And then check out a gem called JSON API dash resources or maybe on. All right. So it is a, uh, rails, you know, gem for rails that makes it very straightforward to declare the resources that sort of make up your server. That's JSON API compliant. So it sort of handles the serialization of resources plus the creation of controller actions that conform to the spec. And it, it it will blow your mind how good it is. Okay. I, I guess I should also uh, plug a uh, coworker's um, open source project. He he wrote a JSON API client that we're using in some of our own stuff. Oh, really? Um, that allows or that helps you build client libraries compliant with the uh, with the spec. Oh, heck! I didn't hear your you didn't even mention you were into it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I have a little bit of experience with it, but. Um, the uh yeah he uh, he's done a lot of work in getting our infrastructure kind of all on the same um communication path did he make is it json api consumer no it's uh json underscore api underscore client hmm. i don't know that one so it's a it's okay. a it's a ruby client yeah 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 well i mean apologies to to him for the work of getting it conformant with 1.0 because there's a lot of changes uh but I think they were the right call. I'm a, I'm a pretty regular contributor right now to JSON API resources, which is the server side of it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So I, I, anyways, I am back, back on the original comment. I am, I'm pretty convinced that this is where things will be for the next, you know, three to five years. So I, and I, I'm, I'm interested in someone that has your sort of outlook on the world to write more about it. Cause I think that's the kind of tone we need. Thank you. That's what I like to read, at least. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a that was a conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I hope people buy your book. Me too. Is that the goal? Let's 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 wrap up with this. So, I'm every time I get an email from you, I wonder the same thing, which mm-hmm. is what drives you to work this hard on this, like. And, and I sort of have that same experience because I do this podcast, which takes time. But what's driving you? Like, well, like, well, like what? Because you do such a nice job. What? It, what is? What is the fire burning that makes you want to do such a good job for the sort of demographic you're writing for? So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm. I I will say that uh, you know, being able or actually having something for people that like my work to be able to buy to both like learn more and also kind of show their appreciation 
is something that I've never really had before. I've always kind of had side projects and things. And so, um, it's, it's an interesting new experience for me to actually have something that, um, that people can buy. But looking from like a, a higher level perspective, I've always had to have side projects. It's just been kind of a part of my personality. I've, I've done some open source contributions. I've written some iOS apps. I've, um, learned all kinds of programming languages, read all kinds of books, that kind of thing. I've just always had to have something to work on. And so, um, this is like, this is my thing. And this is the thing that I am, uh, it's my thing right now, but right now I don't also don't feel like I want to give it up because I'm having the time of my life writing this stuff. I'm uh, really loving talking to all the people that uh, that talk to me through email and through the blog and everything and just kind of uh, getting that sense of uh, community that I uh, – I don't know. It's it's just uh, really, really rewarding. That's great. I mean do you, it has the experience of having the book out kind of delivered what you thought it was going to. I, I honestly really didn't have a whole lot of expectations for it other than it just being something totally new to me that I had never really had um, something for purchase that wasn't a part of my day job. And so um, I, I really I really didn't know what to expect. But the um, there have been parts of it that have been super rewarding, like seeing uh, people that have uh, like that I've talked to back and forth for months and months and months on the through um, email uh, seeing their names come by as like, uh, as in the receipts as purchasers of the book and stuff. It's just like, wow, that's, that's really cool. Like I actually, um, I was able to help them out enough that they, you know, felt like giving back almost. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it's just kind of, uh, it's interesting, the kinds of, uh, dynamics that I wouldn't have expected to see, um, when I've started. Something that I find uh, related to that kind of intense is when, someone has taken the time to like consume what you've worked hard on. And then you end up in a conversation with them where like, it's like you've had conversations with them for months and because they've read your, you know, read your work or listened to the podcast or whatever it is. And it feels very intense and kind of rewarding when that's the case. Um, like, man, I, I, like I, I don't just exist where I am. I exist in this book or this podcast or this blog or whatever. And I'm interacting with people all the time and don't even know it until I, you know, uh, am introduced to them in a different context and learn. I find that very intense and very interesting. And I, I can imagine it's even more so with the book. You really hit on something there because one of the most rewarding things throughout this whole entire process has just been the feeling that you get when you realize that you've like successfully communicated a thought uh, to somebody else. Um, where either from, uh, like a, a book review or somebody linking to a blog post or somebody telling me like, I just, uh, you know, I, I read this and I was able to do this as a result of it or, or that kind of thing. And it's like, I, some of these I see and I'm like, you got exactly out of this, what I wanted to, <laughs> what I wanted you to get out of this. And that's really, really cool. Even this conversation is an example of it. I I wasn't thinking about that when I said it, but where, you know, you wrote this book, I read it for this conversation and you know, it helped me to get to know you better and then enabled us to have a conversation for an hour. That was really interesting. And that's, that, that's, that's like the dream. It's so it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know, maybe we're just wired for it, but it's so, uh, it, it just feels good when you realize that like somebody has got out of something, what you wanted them to get out of it. Mm. All right. Well, that's a good segue. So what would, besides plugging the book, which we've done pretty well, uh, <laughs> what would you like to, to plug? Um, well, uh, I, like I said, I, I write um, weekly on my uh, on my blog at uh, justinweiss.com. 
And from there, you can also sign up to uh, the email list where I send out um, weekly emails that are uh, sometimes like blog posts, sometimes like um, uh, Q&A type things. Um, and uh, I, I'm not – like I want to expand it to more different formats, but I just uh, – I haven't really thought too much about that yet. Cool. On Twitter? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at Justin Weiss. Uh, the last name is W-E-I-S-S. Sounds and, like you uh, own this old Justin Weiss thing. Exactly. I'm super creative coming up with names. <laughs> I think it's, well. um, it, and then, yeah. And then if you're, uh, if you're interested in the book, um, you can find it on the sidebar of the blog at justinweiss.com. Uh, or you could go to justinweiss.com slash practicing dash rails. What's the price now? Is that, is that, uh, is that a thing I'm supposed to ask? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the it's 39 right now. Okay. That's a deal. Well, I hope people buy the book. It's it's good, and and definitely follow the blog. It's a it's a, an email you'll look forward to getting each week. Thank you. Well, Justin, thanks for coming on. Uh, uh, for those that want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm uh, barely known. So that's it for this episode. Thanks. Thank you.